So now we get into the Economist interview that they did with Zaluzhny, General Valery Zaluzhny, who is the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces throughout the war. So this article opens up with a this statement right here. Quote, five months into its counteroffensive, Ukraine has managed to advance by just 17 kilometers. Russia fought for 10 months around Bakhmut in the east to take a town six by six kilometers. Zaluzhny talks about how the, the war is nearly identical to the Western Front in World War One, uh, which, you know, is true. And everybody who knows about that comparison, who knows about the First World War, and who knows about the conditions on the ground in Ukraine now, can attest to that. It's almost identical, but with, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a modern touch, you know. Oh, and those who don't know, 17 kilometers is about 10 and a half miles. That's how much Ukraine advanced generally across the front after five months of their counteroffensive that was supposed to, mind you, reach Crimea, like hundreds of miles away. Seventeen kilometers, five months counteroffensive, thousands of uh, armored vehicles, well, well over a thousand, I should say, hundreds of of tanks lost, hundreds of armored vehicles, well over a thousand lost, tens of thousands of men lost, probably around a hundred thousand in just that offensive. Perhaps, perhaps, like the casualty numbers sort of fell off after the first month, so we can say thirty to fifty thousand. Because it was it was getting up there, it was getting up there, thirty to fifty thousand over the course of five months, nearly a whole backmoot worth of men lost, and now they're talking about not having enough men, as we know from the the article talking the article where Zelensky gave his thoughts on the state of Ukraine and the war. They don't have the men. All that for seventeen kilometers. No, and, they, and they, of course, sort of downplayed the capabilities of Russia by saying that it took them 10 months to take Bakhmut, uh, six by six kilometers. You know, six square kilometers is what they took. Uh, but And Zeluzhny says it's nearly identical to World War One. That's true. Now, he blames the lack of progress in the war partly on the surveillance abilities of both sides. And he says he'd need uh, essentially a brand new and revolutionary military technology revolutionary, uh, you know, in line with the way in which gunpowder revolutionized warfare. So you know, another thing he's not going to get, but this time I can say definitively, he's not going to get that. Okay. Like I, I didn't think he was going to get the tanks and the armored vehicles and the artillery. Uh, the last time he made a big ask like this, uh, but he got that. All right. Uh, it was implausible, not impossible. This is impossible. This is impossible. He's not going to get this. He's not, he's not going to get that, especially on the level of revolution that he's talking about with gunpowder. Okay, no, no, you're just not going to get that. Even if you got, say, since we're comparing it to World War One, even if you got a revolution in warfare similar to, say, the tank or the airplane as a, as a weapon of war, even if you got that, you don't have the industry to produce those weapons. No one has the industry 
to produce those weapons. No one on your side anyway. The Russians could. It would take us years to build a handful of whatever that weapon would be. Like say, again, if we if this is what we're one, it would take us years to build a handful of tanks, a handful of, of fighter planes and bomber planes. It would take us years. The other side could build them in a matter of months. So even if this revolution did happen, the Russians have this superior industrial advantage. They're going to be able to produce more of these weapons than you. Even if this happened, you're still going to lose. As a matter of fact, you'd just be introducing a new element to warfare that neither you nor the Russians understand how to use, but that the Russians can do more experimenting with because they can produce more of the weapon. So he's saying that he's lost. Definitively this time. Because last time I thought he was saying, well, I need all these things that I'm not going to get if, if I'm going to win. I said back then, well, you're not going to get those things. So what you're really saying is that you've lost. He Now, unbeknownst to me until the time came, he actually did get those weapons. And he still lost. So even with all that equipment, all, all those tanks, all those armored vehicles, all those artillery pieces, millions of artillery shells, he still lost. And that was with something that he actually could get. This time, I can say definitively. You're not getting that because your big ask last time was implausible. I didn't think that people would be slow enough to give it to him, but they gave it to him. This time, what you're asking for is impossible, not implausible, impossible. So if you need this revolution to win, it's, it's impossible. It's not going to happen definitively this time. For realsies this time, it's not going to happen. So you've lost is what you said. You have lost definitively. And you know, he, he also talked about the need for innovations in drones, electronic warfare, anti-artillery capabilities, and demining equipment. Uh, and he needed innovations in the use of robotics. So all these shiny new technologies of war, which these can happen, uh, and because he says that... We, it's unlikely that we're going to get one big breakthrough in a single technology. So he does admit that, that it's impossible. But he says it's going to take advances in all the technologies in every theater and every aspect of war that we have available to us today. Which is a more realistic approach. But are those changes going to happen at the rate that you would need to secure some type of edge over the Russians? No. No. And even if you could the Russians can match you with their industry. You're just in an unwinnable situation from a battlefield perspective. There is no path to victory for you on the battlefield anymore. And I think that's just becoming slowly but surely and painfully obvious to everyone observing this. There is no longer a path to victory on the battlefield for Ukraine. Again, 17 kilometers, 10 and a half miles over five months of their offensive. Tens of thousands of men gone, uh, hundreds of tanks, modern tanks gone, over a thousand armored vehicles gone, probably around 2,000 or more. Who knows how many artillery shells fired for five months and they only got 10 and a half miles. 
so he admits that the offensive uh, didn't get where they expected, but he, he then tries to sort of shift the blame as he's doing so. Uh, and this is very a very subtle dig because he says, uh, he, he tries to blame NATO for this failure because he, he goes on to talk about how, how the NATO textbooks, uh, according to the NATO textbooks, his armies should have been able to go all the way to Crimea and back in four months. So saying that the things that NATO promised him he'd be able to do if they would just follow NATO tactics, uh, they didn't work. And to be fair, as, as acknowledging this for what it is, he's shifting blame to NATO, even though this is his failure as the general, as the commander in chief of Ukraine. To be fair, right, that training hasn't worked for them uh, as well as they were told. And it really hasn't worked well when going up against the dug-in Russian positions. So, again, to be fair, he's right that the NATO training uh, isn't cutting it anymore. That is true. That is observably true. But let's not sit here and pretend that NATO is the reason your counteroffensive didn't work. There were a lot of a lot of other reasons, even beyond Zeluzhny himself, uh, and Zeluzhny and Zelensky for that matter. A, a lot of factors as to why you didn't get through. Case in point, the Russians are just good at fighting wars, but no one wants to admit that. No one wants to admit that. No, we're not allowed to. And we're not allowed to admit that the Russians have actually just outplayed you. No, 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 no. It's, it's, it's NATO. It's bad commands. It's we don't have enough this. We don't have enough that. No, no. So he blames NATO, and, but then he, he says this, uh, this very wild number. He says that he underestimated Russia's tolerance for casualties. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing when, he has, when I say that, but he says, quote, that was my mistake. Russia has lost at least 150,000 dead. In any other country, such casualties would have stopped the war, end quote. A uh, hundred and fifty thousand, huh? I can believe that in casualties that the Russians have lost one hundred and fifty thousand, but one hundred and fifty thousand dead? No, that is a hard sell. But is uh, even this is actually less sort of a a, a lowballed number when you look at some of the other articles out there covering Russian losses. Uh, ranging from Russia having suffered nearly 300,000 losses with oh, around 200,000 dead. Uh, and I forget which article I read that in because I, I covered it on the podcast for this or that reason. And I, I did it specifically to go over uh, something that was in it, but I forget where exactly I got it from. But I remember those numbers. I remember those numbers because I, I do like to touch base with what the other side believes the numbers are, you know, just in case I'm wrong, you know. But uh, but this hundred and fifty thousand thing is well wrong. But even though it's wrong, it's actually a, a lower number than what I've seen before, because uh, the other numbers range from Russia having lost lost over two hundred thousand dead, and then there's the other numbers <laughs> saying that Russia has lost half their forces in Ukraine. It's like okay, okay, but. <laughs> okay, buddy. They've lost half their forces. Okay, well, what does it say that they are still beating you with half their force? Less than half their force, mind you. Uh, that says a lot. 
but it says even more when you realize that they have not lost half their force. They have been beating you with a lot less than half that force. In fact, the force has gotten larger than what it was before, and you haven't gotten to half of the original force. So, as wild as this number is, this 150,000 that he's putting up there, now maybe he's right, right? But... As wild as it is, it's even crazy. What's even crazier is that this is an, a, a low ball number. This is one of the lower end figures that I've seen for Russian deaths. At, like at this point in the war. And in that perspective, it is, it, it's, it, it's something I'll say <laughs> it's something. Um, but you know, I, I suppose that's a, a little bit of professionalism coming from Zeluzhny only 150,000 dead like come on guys let's let's be realistic here i mean like this is an obviously inflated number I mean, like don't get me twisted this is a very very inflated number of russian deaths uh the key word being deaths because again uh if you have 150,000 deaths then that assumes that insinuates that even more are wounded so what he's saying is that there are at least 200 to 250,000 russian casualties because that's deaths and wounded That's what he's saying that Russia has lost in this war. Now, again, perhaps by the end of the war, these numbers that he's giving us, maybe they will hold true for the time. But for the time being, I just don't see it. I, d I don't see it at all. But again, maybe we're maybe I'm wrong, right? But what I do see in this, and again, going back to how he tried to shift the blame to NATO, and here he, he's saying that, oh, had any other country suffered 150,000 deaths, they would, that would have ended the war. So what I do see over the, over the course of this article is a man trying to cover his own ass and deflect blame. I mean, I mean, he's literally dug up the whole unlimited Russian manpower excuse, and whole, oh, the the Russians they just have this unhuman, this inhuman uh, tolerance for casualties, and they, they it doesn't matter how many of them drop dead, they just keep coming, and and then they overwhelm our positions with their superior numbers, and we were better, we had superior quality, we we were the best, but you know there were just there were just too many Russians, you know that tired old excuse used, uh, you know, uh ironically by the nazis that came before them uh but yeah that that's what i see a man trying to cover his ass and deflect blame digging up old excuses old, tired old excuses uh, like anything anything to avoid admitting that he has been thoroughly defeated and thoroughly bested in every arena of this war from the military the economic, the diplomatic, and the even the final theater of this war being the media war. And we can see now that that one is also crashing too in real time. He has been comprehensively defeated by the Russians. And it's not even close. It's not even close. But so now as we approach the the point of no return the event horizon which is what it looks like ukraine's gonna cross over as we head into the winter and they there's no talks that like you're getting you're starting to get hints of 
people and officials in Europe and United States talking about, oh, maybe it's time for a peace deal. Maybe it's time for the Ukrainians to sue for a peace. And you had your fucking blinking back during the summer saying, oh, you know, oh, you know if the Ukrainians reach out for uh, a peace deal with the Russians, then of course it'll happen. Oh, you know, we think that the Ukrainians will be perfectly fine with uh, peace talks with the Russians. Just, you know, being, being a little bitch <laughs> and sort of dancing around the the topic of peace deals and dancing and skirting around the confrontation of having to actually sit down and tell the Ukrainians what their position is, which is that you're going to have to make peace, you know, doing that, doing that little, little passive aggressive, that little, uh, uh, I just can't stand that guy. <laughs> so unserious, but we saw that at the beginning, uh, so towards the end of the summer, we're seeing a little bit more of it now, where you're starting to hear rumbles of, oh, Ukraine needs to sue for peace, oh, we need to do the peace deal, and you heard that that unrealistic proposal early back in like uh, August, September, talking about how we can we can exchange peace for Ukrainian NATO membership, trade land for NATO membership, and, and just completely missing the point of how we got into this situation altogether, which is that Ukraine cannot be a part of NATO. That's a red line for Russia. It's, it's insane how far these people will go to not get the point. But as we approach the event horizon, the point of no return, the tragedy of Ukraine enters its final act, which is the collapse. Here comes the collapse. The outcome of this war that I've been saying was going to happen but shockingly, an outcome that no one else even considered. And I, I mean no one. Like, we've been by ourselves on this little podcast saying that this is how this war is going to end for a number of reasons, primarily going off of Russia's stated aims, denazification, demilitarization. Well, you would need at least a de facto level of control over Ukraine to accomplish those goals which would mean a total victory in Ukraine, or at least a Ukrainian surrender to you. So as we approach the collapse, which is now increasingly likely and is very likely the outcome that's what, that we're going to get. Like it doesn't have to, it's not an inevitable outcome, but it is now increasingly the likely outcome uh, where before it wasn't necessarily the likely outcome. Like, this is me speculating on what I thought was going to happen before. But as time has gone on, the likelihood of that outcome has just increased in its likelihood. And now that it's becoming uh, uh, the more probable outcome for this, uh, any peacetime scenario for Ukraine, the, the collapse rather than a negotiated settlement, now that we're coming to this part of the war, it, it's time for a little bit of reflection here because this is an outcome, the very outcome that a lot of these analysts, academics, pundits, news outlets, and all these, these TV generals, as Trump calls them, and quite frankly, a lot of these politicians and even a lot of these experts, the very outcome that all of them refuse to even acknowledge as a possibility. Not because they couldn't see it, but because they didn't want to. Not a single one said, hmm, maybe the Russian military can beat the Ukrainian military and Russia can win 
big in Ukraine, a, a, an actual complete victory. Not, not a single one. And it's over the course of this entire war, not a single one. It's always, oh, Russia can't handle that much land. Oh, they, 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 there's no way they can control that much land. That their army isn't big enough to do that. Oh, the Ukrainian resistance. Oh, well, the war is clearly a stalemate, so we're not even going to think about it. The very outcome that all these people who should know better refuse to acknowledge as a possibility that even I acknowledged was a, a very slim possibility but that I, I thought that that slim possibility was going to come true because of Russia's war aims, all of these people who should know better didn't see it. Again, not because they couldn't, but because they didn't want to. And, and now we're approaching the outcome that I said was going to happen. Now, for those of you who've been watching and listening to this podcast for the past like year and a half, you already know. But for those of you who are new, what is that outcome, you might ask? How exactly am I correct? What am I talking about when I say that I was all alone in saying that this was going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what that outcome is. Total Russian victory. A clear and unambiguous victory that leaves no room for interpretation, no room for the spin doctors in the media to come in and weave some little narrative of a, of a marginal or even a Pyrrhic victory on the pro-Ukrainian side or, for, or a Pyrrhic victory for the Biden administration for that matter. Oh, look, we, we preserved Ukraine. We stood up to Putin and we, we, they could have lost everything, but they only lost this much, you know, you know those little narrative victories. No room for that. A clear and unambiguous victory that leaves no room for the spin. A total strategic victory for the Russians, where the terms of the peace are imposed, not negotiated, imposed by the Russians, rather than negotiated with the Russians, or as these people had in their wet dreams, imposed on the Russians by the collective West. Because that, that's what was supposed to happen. We were supposed to collapse their economy with the sanctions. The ruble was supposed to become rubble. And Russia was supposed to not be able to fund their war effort. And then Ukraine was going to win the war. And then Russia was going to be dealt the terms of their own surrender. That's how this was supposed to go. That's how the, all these people imagined that this was going to go after they made that flip in March where they suddenly and magically decided that the Russians were incapable of winning the war. Ukraine is going to lose. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. It's only a matter of time. But that didn't happen. No peace was imposed on the Russians. And now we see that the likelihood of a negotiated settlement is slipping it's slipping right before our very eyes if for no reason other than Zelensky doesn't want to talk and no one uh, in the United States or Europe has the balls to force him to talk no one no one wants the dog to wag the tail everyone wants to let the tail wag the dog and the result of that inaction the result of 
getting it wrong and making faulty assumptions that just were not true and were not reflective of the actual realities of the Russian military are that now that you've denied peace on the assumption that Russia was just never going to win for so long that the Russians don't want to negotiate anymore. Now the, the likely outcome is that the Russians will simply secure a total victory. A victory where the Russians are likely to take 70 to 80% of the Ukrainian landmass, carving onto the map of Europe a permanent symbol of their victory in this affair. A symbol which will stand as a constant reminder of our total strategic defeat. That's the outcome that is increasingly likely right now. And that's the outcome that not a single one of these people, these analysts, these experts, even considered for a moment as a possibility. The only time that you'll ever, that you would have ever heard such a thing come out of their mouth is when they're fear-mongering about how we have to give money and aid to Ukraine. If, if we don't help Ukraine, then Russia's not gonna stop with Ukraine. They're gonna go on to Poland and the Baltics, and then and the next thing you know, they're gonna be fighting America, you know, when they're fear-mongering. But remember, Russia can't win. The cognitive dissonance was uh, unrecognized but strong among them. And now here we are. Where this unlikely outcome now becomes the probable outcome. And becomes more probable and more likely every day that passes. Where the Ukrainians do not come to the table. And they have until the Russian offensive begins. Because once that offensive begins, it's over. It's over. The Russians aren't going to stop. They've already said that they're not going to have a ceasefire. Even if there are talks going on for a peace, it's they're not going to have a ceasefire while those talks are going on. Combat will continue on as though nothing was happening until they reach a finalized deal. And who knows how long that deal could take them to get. They're, who knows how long that deal will take to reach, even if Ukraine caves on every point. Who knows how long the negotiations are going to take? So the second this offensive begins, it's wraps for you on, on, a, on a time scale. Because the land that Russia takes, they're not going to get back. And if you sit there and wait until they're, they're at the gates of Kiev to, to negotiate, well, there's no point in negotiating with you. We're going to win. We're just going to win. And then we're going to do with you what we want. We're going to denazify you. We're going to demilitarize you. And we're going to do that by simply winning the war. Negotiations are over. That's the outcome that we are rapidly approaching. And as we head into winter and there's no peace talks in sight, Ukraine heads into the event horizon of this black hole that will eat them whole. This black hole from which no light of hope will escape. That's what we're looking at in Ukraine. This segment was taken from my podcast, This Week in Geopolitics. I have new episodes every Monday, so if you like what you heard, consider giving me a follow. Thanks for listening, and hopefully I'll see you next time. Servus.